Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, thank you especially for joining us for the William N. Chambers Lecture today. Can you all hear me okay? Great. Um, so I'm, I'm not starting early. I promise this clock is a little bit slow, so um, it is time, time for us to start. Um, and first, I'm going to just take care of a little bit of housekeeping. So for those of you joining us remotely, um, the CME sign-in code today is IDPY, IDPY. It's not case-sensitive, um, but it is susceptible to autocorrect, so beware of that. <laughs> and then I'd also like to remind you, uh, remind our house staff um, that this Saturday evening from 7 to 10 is the resident winter party um, at the 6th South Street Hotel. You should have all received an email about that, those of you who are invited. And um, so if you need more information about that, uh, you can check your email or uh, talk to the GME office. And I hope you'll all enjoy that. Uh, before I tell you about um, our speaker today, Dr. Levin, I'm going to take a moment to reflect on Dr. William N. Chambers, whose legacy we recall with today's lecture. Dr. Chambers came to Dartmouth Medical School in 1946 as a teaching fellow and was a highly respected member of the Dartmouth faculty for nearly 25 years. During his lifetime, Dr. Chambers became known throughout the New England region for his compassionate approach to patients and his inspired writing on medical practice. In particular, Dr. Chambers was concerned about the melding of outstanding professional skills with a whole person approach to patient care. Dr. Chambers' publications reflect this approach to doctoring and are really a joy to read. They include titles that I would imagine uh, would be of great interest to Dr. Levin, including The Patient and the Physician in Cardiac Symptom Formation, uh, Emotional Stress in the Precipitation of Congestive Heart Failure, and Acute Myocardial Infarction, a study of 100 consecutive cases, which was published in the September 12, 1946 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> I'd like to read a short piece from the transcript of Dr. Chambers' lecture on the spiritual factor in medicine, which I think exemplifies his perspective. The unending stream of remarkable and illuminating discoveries in the realm of pure and applied science forces many conscientious physicians into increasingly restricted fields. This results in a focusing down on specific body systems and diseases to the exclusion and loss of the person as a whole. With this increase in the so-called scientific approach, there results a decrease in the art of medicine. The patient finds himself divided into many parts, admirably taken care of by a host of rigorously and meticulously trained specialists, and yet he knows that something is lacking. The truth is that the sum of the parts of a human being is less than the whole. Man is not only body and mind, but also spirit. And it is with Dr. Chambers' spirit in mind and through his inspiration that we've invited Dr. Richard Levin to speak to us today. Dr. Levin is the president and CEO of the Arnold P. Gold Foundation, a role to which he brings his dedication to supporting health professionals in training and in practice while advocating for compassionate, collaborative, scientifically excellent care. He's a graduate of Yale University and of the New York University School of Medicine, where he stayed on to complete his residency, chief residency, and cardiology fellowship at Bellevue Hospital. He rose through the ranks to full professor at NYU and served as the vice dean for education, faculty, and academic affairs. In 2006, he became the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Vice Principal for Health Affairs at McGill University in Montreal. He's an emeritus professor at both NYU and McGill. Dr. Levin is a physician, investigator, educational innovator, scientist, inventor, and essayist. His professional interests include endothelial cell biology, the prevention of atherothrombotic events, the nature of empathy, the reformation of medicine for the support of compassionate, collaborative care, and the role of new information technologies in medical education and practice. He holds four patents, has published dozens of peer-reviewed articles, editorials, book chapters, and abstracts, and has been invited to too many lectures to count across the nation and the globe. His honors include the Valentine Mott Medal, the Esther Hoffman Baller Research Award, and election to fellowship in the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. He was the recipient of an honorary doctorate in science from Wake Forest University, and he served as a year as a senior scholar in residence at the Association for Academic Health Centers in Washington, D.C. And last but far from least, Dr. Levin resides in New York with his wife, Jane. They have two daughters and three grandchildren. And we are so very, well, very fortunate to welcome Dr. Levin um, to ask and answer the question, can the medical profession survive the current discipline? Good morning, everyone. It's 
It's a great pleasure, a great honor to be here with you this morning, uh, continuing a wonderful tradition of lectureships that are endowed for the purpose of intermixing uh, thoughts, philosophies uh, across all of the divides in medicine. Um, Osler having famously said, uh, in the field of medicine, there are no boundaries. I want to thank uh, Dr. Rothstein, the department, uh, Geisel, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and most importantly, the family of Dr. Chambers, who have created a legacy for the man and doctor and how he thought about humanism in healthcare. Now, I'm linked to Dartmouth and this lecture in uh, some very interesting ways. And I'll tell you about just two. I was the ward resident when your professor, Jonathan Ross, one of the extraordinary group of speakers who have delivered the Chambers Lecture, showed up at Bellevue in July of 1975 to start his internship. <laughs> It was everything that serving in a public hospital of that time provided, not the least of which was the midnight meal. <laughs> now, this is, in addition to being an actual thing, the title of a book of essays by Jerry Lowenstein of NYU. And the title essay describes that incredible moment that we used to have of reflection, of fraternity, of sorority, when all the residents and fellows on call gathered at midnight to discuss and eat the remains of the day. <laughs> the patients who were difficult, impossible, wonderful, tales of the day's heroics, nurse heroes, physician heroes, most importantly, patient heroes, Real advice for tough cases flowed easily from one service to another. And only occasionally, only occasionally would there be an actual slugfest at that time of night. <laughs> I remember a couple of those meals with John. I remember his first day when when he started on call and we walked into the ICU to discover that one of the patients who had been fine uh, on June 30th uh, was crashing on July 1st. And uh, it was John's introduction to the crucible that is Bellevue Hospital. And it was a great pleasure seeing then the doctor and teacher that John would become. And the second link is my daughter Jenny's graduation in the class of 2007 from Dartmouth. And that tearful moment for me when Joe O'Donnell, another Chambers lecturer, introduced her at the wonderful ceremony he created for induction into the Gold Humanism Honor Society, which then uh, I was not acquainted with. So my heritage with Dartmouth can only be described as love. And it adds immeasurably to the pleasure that I've had these last two days of being here with you. That contrasts with my title, uh, Stark. Can the medical profession survive the current disruption? Um, and by disruption, I mean the perfect storm of change that has impacted all of us adversely. And I'll give you a hint. I have been an optimist almost all of my life. To become a dean, one must be an optimist. <laughs> and I will answer this most emphatically, yes. Uh, now, there are many tales of our demise. You know them. One of my favorites is from Star Trek. <laughs> if Star Trek got it right, by 2371, doctors will have been replaced by 
infallible, always available, seemingly affable, algorithmically synthesized holograms. This future doc has no name. He's known only as doctor. That digital projection will have gained in precision what bones had in compassion. Now it's science fiction. But I think it's a dream that health system planners will patiently await for another 350 years or maybe somewhere soon after tomorrow. When actually will the last medical student clerk herself in a white coat? In what year will the last human doctor die? Is it phantasm, this hologram, or horror? So will we survive the current disruption? Uh, my answer is yes, and it will be an imperative. We must survive to achieve optimal health care. And there are many definitions of that, optimal health care in the 21st century. The Gold Foundation defines as significant, scientifically excellent, understood by most of us, as collaborative, by which we mean the co-production of health, and compassionate. Let me provide just a bit of context for that. And it's about the foundation for which I work. Uh, and frankly, the foundation is not well known. In the early 80s, Dr. Arnold Gold, a professor at Columbia, internationally recognized diagnostician in pediatric neurology, and uh, as compassionate uh, a doctor as has ever lived, saw the training environment at Columbia was changing. Molecular biology was offering the prospect of real cures for the first time. They were just around the corner. High tech and data became more important than high touch. On a spring day in 1988, he was on rounds. The team stood comfortably outside the room out of sight of the patient and his family. And a resident began a recitation of the history. The glioblastoma in 503A has normal laboratory values. And Arnold stopped him. He asked, what is the patient's name? And in one of those horrible moments, that we never forget. Having been up all night, he couldn't remember the name. He had to start looking through his papers. Arnold asked the rest of the team. No one knew his name. And then he asked, has anyone spoken to the family? Who are they? Where, where do they live? How is everyone doing? There were no answers. And Dr. Gold canceled rounds and asked the team to call him when they had an understanding of who the patient is. That year, the foundation was created at the suggestion of the then dean of Columbia. And its purpose over these three decades has been to create a standard of scientifically excellent, collaborative, compassionate care by supporting clinicians throughout their careers. So the humanistic passion that motivates them at the beginning of their education is sustained throughout their practice. Now, one of the great elements of my job is traveling around the country, meeting medical students at most of our medical schools. And that notion of humanistic passion uh, defeats the idea that the current generations who join us are somehow different, focused on life and its joys, not work and its joys. It's nonsense. They are as good, as dedicated, more worldly, more educated than we were when we started. Arnold and his wife Sandra, a doctor of education, decided they would try and change the culture of medical education. 
and they adopted this mnemonic, now modified, to allow everyone to understand the components of humanism in medicine that they were talking about. It's IE CARES, and it has the elements integrity, excellence, compassion and collaboration, altruism, respect and resilience, empathy and service. Some of you look at this list and say, yeah, what's the big deal? The point is that this, this series of important elements and the philosophy that underlies them was not discussed in our medical schools for many years as an explicit element of the process of professional identity formation. They just weren't. The expectation following on the heels of the development of modern medical education uh, and the residency was that it would happen in the crucible of the apprenticeship within the hospital. But we didn't know if it did, and we didn't study whether it happened. The Gold Foundation invented the white coat ceremony, now practiced in almost all the medical schools of North America. And when the Surgeon General Vivek Morty was given the National Humanism Award in 2016, he said that the founders had had a stroke of genius in creating this ritual. We then created the Gold Humanism Honor Society, of which there is a great chapter here. And it now has almost 30,000 physician members across the country. And finally, a research institute located at the Cambridge Health Alliance and directed by Liz Gaufberg uh, at Harvard, which is asking fundamental questions about humanism and medicine and what the return on investment is of practicing the gold standard. So let's discuss the nature of this perfect storm of disruption and answers to it, which will be about, on the one hand, education and empathy, and on the other, the importance of collaboration with the patient or the co-production of health. Let's begin uh, with a now famous drawing. How many of you recognize this? You've seen this many times in this grand round. Uh, hands, uh, a few, uh, not, not, not so many. Um, this was a very interesting picture that appeared in JAMA in 2013 in a story by Dr. Elizabeth Toll, a drawing by a seven-year-old girl about her visit to a doctor's office. Would any of you deconstructionists care to describe what is depicted here? The patient appears to be a laptop. A doctor on a computer, someone who appears to be on a laptop. So look at the construction. Here is the patient sitting on the exam table. Here is the family. Everyone has a smile on their faces. And then separated and drawn quite small, you notice, <laughs> is one of us with his back to the patient and family typing at a computer keyboard. And Dr. Toll, in her commentary, said, when a physician focuses on a patient with complete attention, complete attention. Almost immediately, the patient begins to feel cared for. And this becomes a first step toward helping that person feel better. This connection between people is also one of the great satisfactions of our profession. Let's extend that notion just a bit. In a beautiful eulogy in The New Yorker, Atul Gawande wrote about the remarkable late Oliver Sacks. He tells about Sacks uh, asking him, Gawande, to read E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, a 1909 fiction of a future dystopia in which all humans live isolated, underground, in single rooms he called cells. Um, there's some 
open chairs down front, and you will not disturb any of us if you'd like to sit down rather than stand. The people living in these cells were fearful of direct experience and dependent on what he called plate screens. Here's the conclusion of Gawande's eulogy. Yet there is also a boy who, like Sachs, saw what was missing. The boy tells his mother, the, mach the machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come, pay me a visit, so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. If there is a plea of our students, residents, clinicians, all of us, it is a version of this, that we grab that time that somehow the system has stolen from us so that we can have those conversations face to face, which are so critical at establishing the relationship fundamental to the trust and optimal care of a patient. And this plea of ours is directed to faculty, friends, the giant hospital city-states, the insurers, and our governments. How are we going to get this message across? Let's go back a bit. Ludmer, Ken Ludmer, a, a wonderful medical historical philosopher, sets the stage for understanding of the American residency in the early 1800s describing it as an institutionalized apprenticeship. House pupils were financially exploited as apprentices by the institution, the profession, and the community. He concludes, from a more modern perspective, the conflict between the educational needs of house officers and the desires of institutional officials to obtain cheap labor became the system's essential and most enduring tension. And after a long period, a hundred years, in which this deficient apprenticeship occurred, there was an enlightenment. And it was the founding in 1893 of what was referred to as the first mature scientific medical school at Hopkins. Welsh. Halstead, Osler, Kelly were the four founders of Hopkins in this wonderful portrait by John Singer Sargent. And they created something more than just an institution dedicated to the care of the sick. Rather, a hospital that is a part of the university guided by the same educational principles and a new scientific basis for practice. But, and this is the key, the experience was enhanced by the personal presence of the faculty. The faculty's professional work, whether teaching, investigation, patient care, was conducted within the hospital, where they accordingly spent much more time than attending physicians at other hospitals customarily spent. Not only were the faculty visible but they cared deeply about the residents and their work. There was joy, a wonderful happiness of work. Do we have a wonderful happiness of work? Sometimes. But in general, the impingements, the disruption of modern technology has helped in the context of the perfect storm in which business interests and technological advances have managed somehow in a non-system system in the United States to bring us away 
from the joy of work. This condition, this requirement for clinicians' work in order to overcome the chaos and the anonymity and the, the feelings of inferiority, that somehow, despite high achievement, we all capture and bring to the, the work site. This is captured beautifully by Parker Palmer, an educational philosopher whose name adorns a couple of the awards of the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education, the ACGME. When he writes, mentors and apprentices are partners in an ancient human dance. And one of teaching's great rewards is the daily chance it gives us to get back on the dance floor. It is the dance of the spiraling generations in which the old empower the young with their experience and the young empower the old with new life, reweaving the fabric of the human community as they touch and turn. Capturing the objective of the residencies it was founded at Hopkins and replicated everywhere across the country, including here at Dartmouth. Osler said over 100 years ago, a case cannot be satisfactorily examined in less than half an hour. A sick man likes to have plenty of time spent over him, and he gets no satisfaction in a hurried 10 or 12 minute examination. And if we extend that, it sounds like this. A student or resident likes to have plenty of time spent with her by the leading faculty in her institution. She gets no satisfaction in a hurried drive-by, yards away from the bedside and the patient. The loss of time and even more importantly of humane interaction are keys to our problem. The drive to efficiency on the production line, get them in, get them out, the most common diagnosis now from discharge from a hospital being to be determined as an outpatient. <laughs> True. This has had profound consequences on our trainees and ourselves. Um, Ludmer writes again, as medical schools together with their affiliated hospitals grew to gargantuan proportions, they ceased to be close, tightly knit communities. Residents' sense of being appreciated diminished Burnout, cynicism, and anger have persisted as a permanent part of the landscape of graduate medical education ever since. These changes of the last 50 years have not gone unnoticed by us, by society, by anyone. It's so very sad. But how did we come to this? What are the elements that brought us here? I'd like to show you uh, Levin's brief history of medicine in the West. It is a cardiologist's perspective, certainly, um, but it has the point. Um, what happened in 460 BC for 10 points? Five. Yes, yes. Please see me afterwards for the points. Um, Hippocrates was born by legend uh, on the island of Kos in the Aegean, uh, and that began, that began the story. Um, as a cardiologist, I note with some pleasure that 2,000 years later, 2,000 years into the tradition of being a physician, of caring for the sick, Harvey determined that it was blood rather than air that moved through our arteries and veins in 1628. The 19th century was full of interesting things and a suggestion of what would come. So ether, antisepsis, and aspirin all made their way into our pharmacopoeia in, in those days. And then things exploded. In the beginning of the 20th century, penicillin, DNA, the double helix described. And then in the second half of the 20th century, all of this, 
um, bypass surgery, uh, the development of Medicare, the CAT scan, the wonderful triumph of public health in getting rid of smallpox in 1977. The MRI comes out in 1980, and Arnold Gold has his rounds in 1988. And then um, Venter and Collins described the human genome uh, in 2001. What was happening that entire time, shown in yellow? We were practicing a different kind of medicine. We had no diagnostic or therapeutic tools other than the knife uh, to help change the course of human illness. And we got very good at either becoming snake oil salesmen or understanding that the job was to create a relationship with our patients which would give them a sense of safety, of caring, of possibility, of hope. And because we became progressively more recognized as important members of the local society, uh, this became most of what was involved in becoming a physician. But contrast it to what was happening just in that right end of the line. Just in the last 75 to 100 years, there was an explosion. Standing on the shoulders of giants, all of the science that was building allowed us to suddenly see the possibility of cures. And it allowed us, some of us, to change our attitudes about what had become before, shunning it and focusing instead uh, on data. Places like Dartmouth, with many programs focused on the life of the medical students, trainees, doctors, nurses, have done so much to prevent our souls from withering. But the problem persists. Uh, Ilana Yurkowitz was a third-year student at Harvard Medical School when she published a piece in an online magazine called ION. The story is contemporary, like many of the stories that you, you are aware of. I want to read from just a small piece of it. He comes to the operating room late, greets no one, and berates the nurse for not setting up the step stools the way he likes. He tells the resident she doesn't know the anatomy. He slaps the hand of the medical student when she reaches for the retractor. The operating room is tense for hours. He throws instruments across the room. All of us adorned in blue scrubs and surgical caps stand on edge, braced against the next wrathful outburst. By the end of the operation, the intern's hand shakes as he sutures the wounds closed to the beat of the running condescending commentary. More recently, you could substitute the story of the anesthesiologist and her invective and cheating recorded by mistake during a colonoscopy, and the stories of disrespectful performance uh, by an OBGYN surgeon published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and on and on. This type that Dr. Yerkowitz wrote of this arrogant bully is not a style of physician. We used to say, oh, he's a great surgeon, but he isn't very nice to his patients. Or he's a great doc, but he won't talk to you. In research just published in JAMA Surgery, investigators found that post-surgical complications were significantly and 14% more common in patients whose surgeons were in the top quartile of filed complaints within the two years prior uh, to the surgery. There don't have to be too many Darth Vaders to poison the environment, as depicted in this dripping slide. 
uh, it spreads out in waves and they interfere with everything. Care, caring, outcomes, teaching. They raise litigation. They, they submerge into professional discourse. And this is something that we still must fix. We, we've done a lot. There's no question about it in every academic medical center in the country. But it persists. These are the stories of our charges contemporaneously. In a two-part article on disrespectful behavior in academic medicine in 2012, Leap and his colleagues concluded that disrespectful behavior is a major cause of the dysfunctional culture that permeates healthcare. And the disruption that we've discussed only acts to enhance and elevate uh, the level of, of disrespect. And this, in turn, is related to something well-known and described in this institution, which is the hidden curriculum, which was defined by not a, a medical teacher, but uh, a teacher of English and history who said, consciously we teach what we know, unconsciously we teach who we are. And that's critical for understanding how the hidden, hidden curriculum is so important uh, in our culture. So imagine the impact of the unchallenged Darth Vader's on the educational experience. We must everywhere reestablish the culture of respect, and we must acknowledge the role of this hidden curriculum and figure out how to make it the best that it can be. Education and the patient experience of care are inextricably linked. Education and the experience of care. A fellow named Bud Baldwin, a humanist, uh, an investigator on what makes a difference in medical education, who is now a senior scholar at the ACGME, said it in such an eloquent phrase. He said, as teacher is to student, physician will be to patient. As teacher is to student, physician will be to patient. So let's explore that a bit. A renowned uh, medical educator, Brian Hodges, made the case for a series of linkages. He said that without empathy, there is no care. And without caring, the health professions will not survive technological disruption. The theme was brought to a very wide audience very recently when Tom Friedman wrote in the New York Times in January from hands to heads to hearts. I bet many of you saw that. And he said that the answer is the one thing that machines will never have, a heart. Leaders, businesses, and communities that put the human connection at the center of everything they do will be the enduring winners. And he presented in the online blog a picture of a group of people being exposed to IBM Watson Health and how IBM hopes to create artificial intelligence sufficient to solve many of the problems that we solve on a daily basis with difficulty. IBM Watson recently contacted us to tell us that uh, in the course of invention, um, someone forgot to include empathy in the formula. <laughs> and might we not help them in providing a soul to the machine? <laughs> um, this, this issue of whether technology makes us irrelevant is not our field alone. There's a wonderful and, and very dense volume by Richard and Daniel Susskind published last year called The Future of the Professions. Look at the subtitle, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. Um, it, this book, reading this book, is a wonderful emetic. Um, um, and, and, and is that frightening. They talk about lawyers, accountants, architects, 
engineers and how much the curated internet, not these experts' versions of Dr. Google, but, but apps designed specifically to provide expert opinion, often based on such massive data that no human could master it, has already disrupted their professions, both what they do and how they do it. They make the case that while we, in, in the health professions, object, clinicians, whether cognitive or procedural specialists, have already been disrupted by the curated internet and that the pace of this disruption will speed up. You cannot pick up an e-journal, a newspaper of any kind, without seeing headlines about healthcare on the front page. 60% of physicians surveyed would enter another field if they could, and the top two causes of their despair are the inadequate halfway technology, that is the electronic health record, and the fact that they cannot spend sufficient time with their patients, quality time. The most recent survey of primary care providers shows that clinicians spend a third of their time with patients and two-thirds of their time documenting those encounters. If that were a model for people who produce goods, we wouldn't be in business at all. All of this runs downstream uh, to our students and residents. In 2013, Dr. Lauren Block at Hopkins published a survey of residents' time. Their time with patients was down to 12%, a record. They were spending 40 to 60% in front of a computer screen, Forster's plate screen. And remember the boy from that machine stops who had the simple plea of seeing humans face to face. What the headlines rarely say is that we are at risk, our profession, not because of Obamacare, not because of talk of repeal, but because empathy has been taken out of the equation. The perfect storm has created an empathy deficit. <coughs> Technology pulls doctors and nurses away from the relationship which is so critical. Patients are more informed than ever about medical conditions and come to appointments with a diagnosis at the ready, upsetting the traditional conversation and balance of power. As you saw, I recently had the great privilege of meeting the Surgeon General, 37-year-old guy who, who is trying desperately to help the country by describing the importance of medicine uh, to society. And in his acceptance speech, he said this, the world is locked in a struggle between love and fear, and we must tip the scale, all of us, by putting our thumbs on it. We must tip the scale toward love. The expression of love in medicine is described in the highest relational practice. And this leads directly to the solution of the quadruple aim. The quadruple aim, as many of you know, is an invention of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, one of whose founders, Paul Batalden, uh, helped create your institute. And it has described the quadruple aim in this fashion, uh, abbreviated. Better care, improved health outcomes, improved clinician experience, the joy of work, at the lowest possible cost that can be uh, obtained. And in Pilos One, Helen Reese, um, a Harvard professor and gold investigator, published a meta-analysis that shows that a focus on the relationship between clinician and patient significantly improves health outcomes, as significantly as smoking cessation and aspirin use utilized for the prevention of vascular disease. And there are now randomized trials in which the intervention of providing care with empathy and compassion dramatically affects outcomes, cost, adherence to therapy, rehospitalization, and litigation. So the simple act of demanding the time and the opportunity to create the relationship can bring to the bottom line all of the savings necessary 
to run the healthcare system at almost no cost. This is shown most interestingly, and is a link to our final topic, by a paper by Judith Hibbard and colleagues in Health Affairs, published, sorry, published in a really interesting study on the analysis of 33,000 patients at Fairview Health Systems in Minnesota. Patients in the highest quartile of patient engagement cost the health system as much as 20% less than in the lowest quartile, 20%. That is enough to run everything that we have to do. And how is patient engagement achieved? Certainly by the elements of the IE Cares mnemonic, but perhaps most importantly, by a relatively new topic in medicine, uh, for which Dartmouth Emeritus Professor, as I said, Paul Batalden, and his colleagues at the Dartmouth Institute and others coined the phrase the co-production of health. It is a term that replaces patient-centered care, which was a compromise 17 years ago when the Institute of Medicine was trying to come up with these critical elements that would describe optimal health care. And in the center you see in green patient-centeredness, but it didn't stick. All the others did. Patient and family-centered, patient satisfaction, activation, customer service, patient experience, patient on and on, because patient-centered care wasn't actually it. Perhaps the co-production of health is. On January 24th at the National Academy of Arts and Sciences in Boston, Paul, his daughter, Dr. Marin Batalden, our Research Institute Director Liz Gaufberg and their colleagues presented the first cohort of Cambridge Health Alliance Gold Innovation Fellows who are mid-career providers who wanted to study the co-production of health. Co-production is borrowed from economics and specifically Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom. It highlights the difference between goods and services. For so long, what we do in medicine has been considered from every angle goods to be sold, when what it is and has always been is a service, dependent on the relationship between two experts in the room, the doctor and the patient, and contributed to by each in order that the care plan actually fit the patient. Now this is a paradigm shift in healthcare service delivery from one in which we think about value as being principally created by health professionals for patients, pushed toward patients, to one in which we recognize that people are actively engaged in making their own health related value. And in this shift, we need to ask ourselves what real contribution we make to a particular case at a particular time for patients who are already engaged in trying to figure out how to solve their health problems. So to my question, will we survive this disruption? The answer is yes. We clinicians must and will survive because the commons, our colleagues, the citizen patients, the public, will be much better off with us sprinkled about. To sustain us, we will have to focus anew on two things. As the Dalai Lama famously has said, recognizing that compassion is the radicalism of our time and being comfortable with a small revolution in health professions education and practice which follows old ideas created newly for a technological age. And the second, the dance of the spiraling generations, making humanism in medicine the message, the core of the message, and teaching and mentoring the explicit, compensated means of delivery of that message. And I believe we can do this together. Thank you very much.
We have some time for questions. Would anybody like to start with a question for that? Thank you for that. Um, speaking to the choir in some ways, I think. I'm thinking about the fact that our trustees are meeting down the hall today. Um, and the co-production of healthcare needing to involve the co-production with trustees, with C-suite, and with us. I'm wondering your thoughts on how to get these types of presentations in front of the people that are um, partly responsible for structuring the systems within which we're currently working. Um, that is the question. And um, uh, they are observing with some skepticism the C-suite folks, the trustees, the, the people of high net worth who can make our lives different, um, this despair that characterizes most of our work uh, in which we went from a profession that loved most of the minutes of our day to one in which those minutes have been stolen, as we discussed. So I think <clears throat> the point must be that the voice of physicians and now nurses that has been suppressed since Medicare was passed in 1965 and which caused a sea change in how we are paid and what we are paid, which became much greater after that point, needs to be turned into one in which we say, you, in the third party payers, in the insurance companies, in the hospitals, must figure out how we can have this paradigm shift in which education again becomes the central focus of what happens in hospitals. And I know that we have blinders on to some degree in academic medical centers because we're way at the end of the spectrum of possibility. Nonetheless, uh, that time be carved out, uh, and it's going to cost some funds. Those funds may come from the 20% savings that we could anticipate from just practicing this kind of relational medicine and the, using the co-production of health. We take those savings, we offer it to those folks and say, give us the opportunity to prove that this is much better for everyone, patient and doctor alike. And it could happen incrementally, uh, but I, le I believe it's going to have to happen with some sudden breaks in the surface of the earth. More questions? So as you know, in a couple of hours, this room is going to fill with the families uh, and friends of our students who match. And um, talking with them recently, they know this is true. It's why they came here. But they're so distracted by these other incentives that are more potent in their days. Am I seen as good enough by that testee attending? Uh, can I pay back my loans? Can I have that BMW that all of us physicians have? Um, that it's hard for them to stay tuned in to this true message. Do you think that in order to get to this place you've described, that we attendings who are wealthy need to demonstrate that we can free ourselves of the addiction to money. How much is our comfortable lifestyle getting in the way of this vision? Um, my, my mentor, Saul Farber, who invented NYU Medical Center, uh, in a, to a question like that would respond, you know, uh, the binding constant between medicine and DNA is impossible to break. Um, and maybe the answer is not in that direction. 
maybe the answer is that whatever the adjustments that must be made uh, in our salaries so that they are paying for us to be able to do the work that we all came to learn and then do uh, is a replacement for just a few of the bucks. And um, the students get the opportunity because we're going to bring that cadre of uh, doctors whom, we, whom the systems now insist, unless they can get independent uh, reimbursement for the teaching that they do, they're paying for patient care. And that is a major change. So these two things need to be accomplished. And I think there is sufficient savings in uh, a system of compassionate care so that that can be paid for. But I'd love to hear what residents or students in the room have to say, especially this being match day. <laughs> how, how are you feeling about this question? You, you came with a calling. Do you feel that you will be able to follow that calling? Difficult in a group. I, I met with some fourth years yesterday. They were all over this question. The answers were wonderful. I, I reassure you that your students are as, as spectacular as any as I've met anywhere. With, uh, as you saw eloquently uh, um, presented, um, we've obviously had huge um, technological improvement that has led to great um, advances in, in medicine. But beyond the capability of um, the individual provider um, or small group to um, build the relationships necessary that you speak of, um, and instead we're going more and more to larger and larger teams um, with the center being our computers. Uh, how do you see that we can achieve a better balance of that? Um, <clears throat> I think we, we can expect uh, that any, any size group and maybe the team, an oriented team, uh, is actually better at this than an individual. Certainly, uh, what's happened in uh, Alaska um, in an experiment in which the healthcare system, which was failing, was turned over to um, the local patients. And uh, using a variety of approaches which focus on that relationship between the team providing the care and the patient and family uh, turned the whole system around so that it functions in a way that brings joy back to, to all the parties at a cost that they can bear. So I don't think the model of, uh, of the single practitioner against the world um, with a single patient sitting somewhere uh, having the wonderful moment of inquiry that allows deep understanding and trust to occur need necessarily be the model that survives in the 20th century with, with all of the things you describe. And everything I have seen thus far about team care um, works just as well. So I have a question coming back. I think um, the hesitance of our house staff to answer your question about their motivation uh, and sort of relates to Tim questions too. Many of our students who are going to be graduating today have a very high debt burden. And so this, is, this has become a complex cycle. How do we break that cycle? Yeah, well, um, Bernie's idea uh, is not so far from the truth. Um, I think we need uh, to recognize two things. Uh, we need, as a people, to declare health as a right, a human right, 
and having done that, we need to recognize that society has valued the house of medicine for 2,500 years with our ability to bear intimate witness to what patients do in order that their lives, productivity, um, achievement can be the highest possible. And in order to do that, we need a form of debt forgiveness or universal scholarship that allows physicians to do that in exchange, Tim, for a few bucks less uh, and the opportunity to make certain that we all are not making choices that are forced upon us by that extraordinary multi-hundred thousand dollar burden. Yeah. So I think we, we've met the hour. Uh, if you have a moment to answer questions, if people have more and sure. privately, we'll have to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.